Hey, it's Jeremy Myers. This is a bonus podcast episode. About two and a half years ago, I was interviewed by Jason Weedel for his podcast. And for whatever reason, he never aired this interview. So I decided that I would air it myself. <laughs> we had a great discussion about following Jesus, church, and various questions about theology. I think some of these questions you might be having as well. And so listen in as Jason Weedle and I have our discussion. Here with Jeremy Myers. Thank you, Jeremy, for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Could you could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, I have a job on the outside. I'm actually a prison chaplain, of all things. But uh, on the side, I do some blogging and writing and podcasting, things like that. So my blog is redeeminggod.com. And I recently started a podcast called The One Verse Podcast. Sort of both of them have a similar approach. I look at theological topics on the blog and Bible verses on the One Verse Podcast. And in both, I'm sort of trying to take a non-religious approach, I suppose, to theology and Mm -hmm. scripture. And sort of the, the byline or the tag is to, you know, redeem theology, redeem scripture, uh, from religion. I, I sometimes think that religion uh, sort of captivates people. It uh, enslaves people. And so uh, it shouldn't be that way. And a lot of times religion uses theology and scripture to do that. So so the kind of the goal on both the podcast and the blog is to help people be liberated from religion so they can follow Jesus, they can have a more intimate relationship with God, uh, so they can understand scripture and theology in a more relational way as well. Uh, and so that's kind of the approach of, of both the blog and the podcast. I've written a couple books too, but uh, none of them are bestsellers or anything. They're all self-published, so, but those are on Amazon. Uh, and yeah. they, they sort of follow on the same theme as well. Uh, but that's, uh, that's basically about me and uh, what I do. So the, the, the one verse podcast I thought was very interesting and started not too long ago, looking at one verse at a time, starting with Genesis 1-1. And... Uh, I did the math earlier today. If you if you do one verse at a time <laughs> per week, it's uh, 598 years yeah. to, to make it through the Bible. Yeah, I'm planning on still being around for all that. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I did the math too, and um, I'm going to have to speed things up. Now, initially, when I very first started that, I was planning on doing five-minute episodes and doing five shows a week. But even at that rate, I think it was going to take me 100 years or something like that. <laughs> so I'm going to have to speed things up. Obviously, I'm not going to get through all the way, all the way through the Bible. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. Uh, I think I'm going to get through Genesis, probably Genesis 3, maybe get into Genesis 4 a little bit. I'm not quite sure. And this thing develops as, as it goes along, as you know, with your podcast. But uh, probably yeah. after that, I'm going to get into maybe the Gospels a little bit and then jump up to Revelation, sort of get this theme uh, that I want to develop through the Bible, sort of a big picture overview, you know, beginning, middle, and end sort of a thing. Then sure. I'll come back and start looking at some individual verses or passages in other places. So that's sort of the short-term plan. We'll see how it goes as I go along, though. And I, I think that looking at, starting with Genesis and looking at those those first chapters of Genesis, Genesis really kind of sets the tone for where you're going, the way that you're looking at Scripture, and uh, really kind of opens up not just Genesis, but a big picture, like you said, of the entirety of what God's doing. And I guess that's one reason that I've I've found it pretty interesting. 
Um, can you kind of talk about your your approach to the Bible and what what you're wanting listeners to understand and realize as you're going through even just those first few verses of Genesis? Yeah, for sure. Um, I I mean I love Scripture. Uh, I've spent my almost my entire life reading and studying it, teaching it to some degree or another. I don't know why. I was sort of a strange kid even growing up. I loved reading it when I was when I was in grade school and junior high. And I, I've got journals, you know, paper journals from back then about all my things I was studying and researching back then. So that's just been sort of a lifelong hobby of mine. It's been something I've always been interested in. But in in recent years, uh, sort of following the theme of my blog and podcast and so on, I, I've come to think that uh, some forms of Christianity, not all, but some forms of Christianity sort of misuse or abuse the Bible. Uh, and I've come to realize how I've done that myself uh, in a lot mm-hmm. of my teaching in the past, especially when I was a pastor. Some of my old sermons are still on my blog uh, in text and audio format. And I, I sometimes go back and listen to them or read them, and I just cringe at the way I myself used the <laughs> Bible way back then. So I've gone through a lot of changes. Um, but I was recently thinking about uh, when, I, when I first went to Bible college, one of the very first classes, I remember it so distinctly, uh, I sat in this class, it was on bibliology, the study of the Bible, and we, for first day of class, the professor had this pop quiz, um, and the question was, what is the supreme form of revelation from God? And it was a multiple choice question, and there were four options. It was nature, conscience, scripture, and Jesus. So, you know, a pop, pop quiz, and I'm a first-year student, and so uh, I answered Jesus because I figured, well, Jesus reveals God to us, all that. But I remember, <laughs> I remember it distinctly because I got the question wrong, and in, in the class, he explained to us that the Bible is the supreme revelation from God because without it, we wouldn't know anything about Jesus. And, you know, that sort of made sense to me. Oh, well, okay, I guess that's true. If we didn't have the Bible, I wouldn't know anything about Jesus. But... In recent years, and that's the approach I took, and I sort of think, and maybe this isn't true for everybody, I sort of think that's the approach a lot of Christians take. Uh, yeah. You know, the Bible is the rule book. It's the guide for life. It's, it's, it is the supreme, you know, we need it to learn about Jesus. We need it to guide our life. And in recent years, though, uh, and this sort of explains my approach to the Bible, I've sort of gone back to how I answered that pop quiz question at the very beginning, and I've started to think that Jesus is the supreme revelation from God. And, and yes, 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 you know, we, we, need, we need Scripture to learn about Jesus and the Gospels and everything, but the way I am now reading Scripture, and this has been the big change in my life over the last, I don't know, seven to ten years maybe, is uh, when I read and study Scripture, I sort of interpret it or understand it or seek to apply it through the lens of Jesus. And that's not my term. You know, you you probably hear people talk about the Jesus lens, or there's uh, some people talk about the, you know, cruciform theology. I don't know if you've heard about that. You know, your listeners have heard about that. But uh, it's just this idea about developing your theology, living your life, reading scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ. And I sort of think of Jesus as the trump card of scripture. So if I'm trying to understand a particular passage or particular text in the Bible— I try, and it's difficult, I try to view it through Jesus Christ, and especially Jesus Christ crucified. Uh, And and one of the reasons I do that is because Jesus himself said, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Paul wrote that Jesus is the uh, image of the invisible God. That's in Colossians 1. And then author of Hebrews writes that Jesus is the exact representation of God. So uh, that's just my approach to Scripture now. Uh, scripture, obviously, is super important, and, and we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. But my real approach to Scripture now is trying to read it through Jesus. He's the guiding principle, the guiding ethic, the the, 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 the rose-colored glasses, maybe, you know, by which I view the rest of Scripture. So obviously I'm thankful for Scripture and what it reveals to me about Jesus, but I still think that Jesus is the guideline, the lens through which I read the rest of Scripture, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I think it's what I found, one thing that I found interesting in, in listening to some of your stuff is, um, I guess maybe it's sort of a, a middle road that you take with, with some things. For instance, I, well, it seems that in a lot of approach to the Bible, a lot of people want to categorize Christians or Bible teachers or scholars kind of at the extremes to say mm -hmm. you are either a conservative that takes a very literalist approach to every verse in the Bible or you are a liberal that takes – that kind of says the Bible is myth. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it seems to me that you – in approaching a lot of the Bible, you're you, you know you're open to historical criticism and um, what historical culture can teach us, but still take a fairly conservative approach to uh, the way we understand the way we understand Scripture. Is that no? I think accurate? you're absolutely right. Yeah, I, I do try. I don't know if it's intentional, but it's just where I'm most comfortable in that sort of that middle ground between the two. Um, yeah, I look at historical criticism and a lot of the historical cultural backgrounds of stuff, which, I mean, both sides of the camp, I suppose, look at that sort of uh, research. But I suppose that my liberal friends are going to think I'm too conservative. In fact, I've had some people criticize me for my, some, some liberal friends criticize me for my whole, my, my views on inspiration and inerrancy and things like that. Uh, whereas my conservative friends uh, are shocked at some of the conclusions I come to from Scripture, and they say that I've gone off the deep end, and and I'm an apostate and a liberal and a heretic, and and so yeah, you, you know, you get it from both sides. <laughs> yep. Uh, but it's it's what makes sense to me, and um, you know, it, it's 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 in change. It's it's changing all the time, but but that's where I I, I feel most comfortable now, and. Um, We'll see what happens in the future, but I, some of that might be my upbringing and my education. Uh, I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian family. Yeah, I went yeah. to really conservative Bible colleges and seminaries, so that's probably just uh, where I'm at. I sometimes laugh and wonder what the, the me of 20 years ago would think of the me today. We'd probably have a pretty good discussion, he and I. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, that's that's part of the following Jesus and the Christian life and that's the way it ought to be for right. all of us. That's right. Yeah, if you if you believe the same thing today that you believed twenty years ago, there might be something wrong. Sure. You know, you you mentioned the inspiration and inerrancy. Uh, in approaching those, how do you how do you well first? Why don't we talk inspiration? Um, when we say the Bible is inspired, what does that mean for you? Mm -hmm. Oh my! This. Uh, 
You know, I, I do believe in the inspiration of Scripture, so I want to make sure I state that first. However, <laughs> I suppose, to be fairly honest, uh, my view of the inspiration of Scripture, it, it might not be exactly what lots of other people today think of when they think of the inspiration of Scripture. Now, having said that, I don't know. I mean, you pick up theology books, and people are all over the board when they talk about what inspiration means. I mean, you know, you have the whole spectrum of things. You know, are you talking about yeah. a dictation theory where people just kind of become robots? You know, and I don't think very many people believe that, but they just write down exactly what God says, so they're basically mindless, you know, typewriters for God or something. Uh, where you got you know a spectrum where it's sort of a, God gave them sort of an idea and they could put it in their own words and however it is that came out. I mean, there's all sorts of things. Um, on that spectrum, I'm not exactly sure where I fit. Uh, inspiration for me, obviously, it, it, it comes from the, the primary verses that Second Timothy three sixteen, where Paul writes about all Scripture is inspired or depending on your translation, God-breathed or whatever. Uh, and, and everybody knows it's a real tricky word to understand what Paul means there. So my preference, and I have a bunch of blog posts on this from, I don't know, six, seven years ago on my blog about this where I was struggling with this. But basically what I came to is my preferred translation for that is God-whispered. So the, the, if the word is theopneustos, and the neustos there is sort of uh, spirited or breathed. It's the word for wind, uh, could be. And then, of course, theos, or theop, is uh, God. So, so God-spirited, God-breathed, God-whispered. Uh, and I sort of uh, liken it to what Jesus was talking about in John 3, about how the Spirit moves where he wills, and sort of the idea of the wind and the trees and all that sort of picture there. And basically, so I take that, and then I, I think when I look at, from a historical perspective, inspiration and inerrancy, you know, um, it's really helpful to understand how those doctrines developed the way they are today. So really, when you look at the historical development of those doctrines, um, they came out of a response to the Enlightenment and, you know, scientific revolution and all of that. And, and basically, this, this biblical criticism, this historical criticism, and certain scholars, you know, call them liberal or whatever, but they began to question some of the stories of the Bible and say, well, this couldn't have happened, the miracles couldn't have happened, the Red Sea crossing couldn't have happened, the flood couldn't have happened, and all of these other things. And uh, the Christian response, or at least the conservative fundamental Christian response to this was, well, of course it happened, uh, and uh, so they sort of came down really hard on this inspiration and inerrancy thing as a response to the criticism, to the scientific yeah. revolution. And I don't know, in my opinion, theology that's built sort of a responsive theology, reactionary theology, maybe isn't always the best way to develop theology. I mean— it helps us ask questions that maybe we never had asked before or maybe didn't look at seriously enough, but I think we really need to be careful about theologies that come out of that. So anyway, uh, we have this, this, this development of inspiration and inerrancy that sort of was a reaction to the Enlightenment. Uh, but you, you go before the Enlightenment and even sort of during the Renaissance and the Reformation and all these things, and you look at what people like Martin Luther, even John Calvin, or, or some of the older church fathers, what they were talking about Scripture, and I don't think, I think it'd be very, very difficult to 
find statements from them that if you read it and study it in context, uh, it's going to say exactly the same thing or even similar the same thing to what people think of when they think about inspiration and inerrancy today. So I guess if you're going to say, do you believe in inspiration? I would say yes. And I hold to sort of the inspiration or the view of scripture that was common in the church prior to the 18th century. Um, yeah, that's you know, sort of I, my, I think my... the kind of the uh, the perspective that I've come to is I don't have a problem saying that the, the that scripture is inspired, and we can mean a lot of things by that, just like you said. But when we talk about inerrancy, I I, I think what I've come to is is that the word inerrant that talking about inerrancy really doesn't make a lot of sense with mm. the Bible. Um, it, it's not helpful. And I mean, is that is that kind of where you, where you're at too? That it's not uh, maybe it, it, it it's not a completely helpful or sensible way to approach the Bible to say to talk about inerrancy. Well, hmm. Um, I guess for myself, I, I mean, I definitely understand what you're saying, but I guess for myself, I'm still comfortable with the word inerrant, uh, and I, I guess I would call myself still a believer in inerrancy. Although, again, I need to qualify that. I mean, a major qualification. I would suppose, again, most people who call themselves inerrant are going to not consider my view true inerrancy. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> look, uh, Genesis 1, for example. All right, so in, in the One Verse podcast, I am doing this thing on Genesis 1. Well, do I think, and you know, this comes out in, in, my, in my episodes, do I think that Genesis 1 provides, gives, an accurate, historical, scientific explanation of what literally happened, I don't know, 6,000, 10,000 years ago, or whatever the case may be. And to that, I'd say no. So from a scientific, historical perspective, yeah, there's errors there. It's it's in error, if you want to call it that. It's not true from a historical, scientific perspective. But having said that, I wouldn't say that Genesis 1 is an error, and I sort of try yeah. and been bringing that out in my episodes because I think that just to try to read that chapter from a historical scientific perspective is to try to read it in a way Moses, you know, if you believe Moses wrote it, uh, didn't intend. And so I'm trying to point out that you can have an inerrant reading of Genesis 1 if you understand what Moses was trying to say in that chapter, and when yeah. you understand that, then you end up with the actual literal reading of Genesis 1, uh, which is a theological reading, sort of a polemic against the other deities of that day. So uh, is it in error? Well, from scientific, science and history perspective, yes. But is it untrue? No, it's very true. It's, it's absolutely true. Uh, right, so, and I, I guess that's part of what... I would kind of mean in saying that inerrancy is not a helpful mm. concept or mm. it's not something that makes sense yeah. it, because usually I think in our 21st century way of using the word inerrant, we mean literal, we mean it happened exactly as the words say and we don't have a lot of room for maybe nuance and mm. poetry and mm. cultural relevance. And yeah, Absolutely. All. Absolutely, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, especially that word literal. I mean, oh, I just have the literal reading of the Bible. Well, I mean, okay, does God have wings and, you know, the, all these things? Is, is, is God up there riding around on the clouds? 
yeah. you know, the way the Bible, you know, oh, well, that's poetry. Okay, so, you know, I'll, then, then how come Genesis 1 isn't poetry? Right, so it, you're right, it's unhelpful. And you know what else? I, I think that this idea of inerrancy is sometimes, and this gets back to sort of my blog and my podcast, I sometimes think that word inerrant is a way that some Bible teachers sort of try to uh, control or manipulate the people in their church or the people in their audience or whatever. So it, it comes out like this, you know, uh, I, I just believe the literal inerrant interpretation of the Bible, but that pastor over there or that author over there, he doesn't. And so therefore don't listen to him, only listen to me. And so what he's doing is using this concept of inerrancy sort of to control the people in his congregation to only follow him, only listen to him, only do what he says. And if they stray, well, you know, uh, or they, to draw the boundaries and say we are this kind of Christian, right? Right. Yeah, we're the true yeah. Christians. They're not because because we believe this, and this is the inerrant, literal reading of Scripture. And yeah, it's it it, it becomes unhelpful. It becomes dangerous, manipulative. It's uh, not helpful. So yeah, in that sense, I completely agree with what you're saying. Um, absolutely. So I, as you were talking, I, I I was thinking also of one of the arguments that we kind of hear. Um, around a lot of those ideas of inerrancy is that that kind of found brick foundation. You remove one brick and the whole thing crumbles. You say one thing is not true and the whole thing falls down. Um, it's the the answers in Genesis kind of thing where you know if you if you say it's not literal, then you can't believe anything the Bible says. What do you think of that kind of argument? Yeah, it's that old slippery slope argument. Yeah. Um, well. To some degree, I suppose it's true. I mean, it's sort of like um, uh, an Excel spreadsheet, maybe. You know, you got all these figures on there, and you change one thing, and all of a sudden, a bunch, there's this cascading effect. A bunch of other things change. It's just natural. That's going to happen. Having said that, though, I think the fear that, that Answers in Genesis or other people like that put in people is, oh, well, if you reject this, then pretty soon you're going to end up as an atheist. Uh, and that's just not true. <laughs> that's just not true. The funny thing is, is what they're teaching is actually makes it true. What, what they're teaching is mm. that if you don't believe the Bible the way we do, well, then you can't believe any of it. And yeah. so a college student goes off to college and he gets in, in a class where the professor or whoever prevents, uh, presents some convincing truths of evolution or whatever the case may be. I don't know. Errors in the Bible. Who knows? It doesn't really matter. And all of a sudden, this co poor college kid, he can't refute it for whatever reason. Uh, maybe there are refutations and he doesn't know it, but whatever, it doesn't matter. So now all of a sudden he's faced with a choice. Well, boy, I was taught that I had to accept all of it or none of it. I can't accept this little bit. So therefore, I have to reject all of it. And off they go. Whereas I think it's a much safer option to say, um, look, questions are good. Uh, doubts are healthy, um, you know, if it leads you to investigation, research, uh, honest investigation. Um, and you don't have to, we're all in process on this. So uh, I sort of think it's that, that approach that actually causes people to reject the faith, not the idea that questions are, are, are good and healthy. That's, that's a healthy way to go. Having said that, um, look, uh, you can sort of question, challenge, maybe even reject some of the historical scientific statements in the Bible without rejecting the historical uh, evidence 
for Jesus. For me, again, Jesus is the center of everything. Uh, right. Everything revolves around him, centers on him. And I think that the, his, the, the evidence for the historical reliability of the Gospels, uh, th- there's better historical evidence for that than almost any historical event uh, in ancient history. Maybe even for modern, I mean, not modern, but relatively within the last 500 years or so. And you just look at some of the books written by, I don't know, N.T. Wright. Uh, there's a great book on Jesus by Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy uh, that just goes into all the details about how we can know the Gospels are historically reliable. So, um, you know, you look at those, and I, I just don't think that slippery slope is going to lead to a person, if they're honestly considering, I don't think that that slippery slope argument is going to lead to a person rejecting Jesus or what we read about him in the Gospels, the death and resurrection. And is the difference, do you think, um, maybe the the difference of approach, like you said, when we when we are looking through the lens of Jesus and Jesus is our starting and ending point, as opposed to simply saying the Bible is our starting and ending point, does that cause us to maybe uh, be more flexible with what we read? For instance, if if I say the Bible is the foundation of my belief, if I find contradictions in the Bible, um, then that ends up rattling my faith. But if I say Jesus is the foundation, and then I find contradictions, maybe it doesn't matter as much. There you go. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Uh, I listened to another podcast I listened to is Greg Boyd's, and he's always talking about this House of Cards theology which he says is so dangerous. I have a little bit difference of opinion on with him on that, but but that's the, what, exactly what you're describing as well. If the Bible is, like you're saying, if the Bible is is the your theological system, this house of cards, and you take one out, the whole thing comes tumbling down. Uh, but if you're built on Jesus, and he has so much historical reliability, uh, there, there's nothing that can challenge that, in my opinion. And uh, your foundation is much more secure. And uh, not just the historical foundation, but theological foundation and everything else. And besides that, you know, even if, even, even if um, someone ends up questioning the historical reliability of Jesus, the, the, the basic sort of theological message, I suppose, of the good news of the gospel of Jesus is still intact, in my opinion. I... I, I think that someone could follow the teachings of Jesus, uh, even if they thought not everything in the Gospels was historically true. Mm. Um, and so I don't, I don't go that far, and I don't, I don't see how I ever could. But I still think that even still, the 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 gospel, the the core of the gospel message is still intact. Uh, even if a person doesn't accept all of the historical reliability of the Gospels. Now, again, if you study it, I'm pretty sure you will, especially the death and resurrection. But, um, you know, that's, yeah, Yeah. like you say, having Jesus as your foundation rather than the rest of Scripture. Yeah, I think of um, Bart Ehrman, Ehrman, however you say it, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but he talks about, um, as a college student, writing a paper— and I don't remember what the the scripture is that he's writing about, but basically trying to justify these apparent contradictions. 
in one part of scripture and very creatively. And then the professor says, well, maybe it's just a mistake. And it, that really shook him. And that was really the beginning of kind of a crumbling of his faith. And he's still a prominent New Testament scholar, but not necessarily what most of us would call a Christian. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that's a pretty prime example of building our religion upon script, upon the Bible instead of on Jesus. That is an excellent example. Yeah, and one wonders where he would be today if someone had come along, or maybe, I'm not quite sure his history either, what church he had grown up in or anything like that. I'm pretty sure, didn't he go to Moody Bible Institute? I think that was where he did his undergraduate. I can't recall, though. Um, yeah, I don't remember either. Yeah, but someone maybe had come along and said, you know, you can understand these texts differently, even call them errors if you want, and not have to abandon some of this other stuff. Again, I don't know his right. history well enough to say for sure where he's coming from or what happened to his history, but an excellent example for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and even Templeton, you know, Templeton, uh, um, Billy Graham's early partner in those crusades, same thing with him. Right. And he ended up becoming an atheist, I believe. So you can read some of his story and the same thing. He just couldn't accept certain things. He ended up rejecting it all. And it's really sad how he went, mm. but um, yeah. And when we look at those things, and we probably see that kind of story coming about more and more in just the lives of regular people. You know, we, we hear statistics of, of people leaving the church and the church just contracting more and more every year. And uh, so that's probably the case for a lot of people. And, and it does have to make us it should make us say, well, maybe we've kind of been presenting this thing not the right way. I don't know. It, 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 I think it makes the, the shrinking of the church makes churches ask a lot of questions, and maybe they're not always the right questions. Absolutely. You know, I just heard a statistic this week of the—it's out of this—I uh, can't remember, the Duns. I think you go to the Duns.com, and they've got the book there. I can't remember, Church Refugees or something like that. I can't remember the name of the book. Anyway, they did this study out of the 210 million adult— adults in the United States, there is, what was it, 65 million who used to attend church, but no longer do. And of those 65 million, I think the statistic was uh, 35 million of them no longer identify with Christianity or have anything to do with them. They've, they've turned their back on the whole, whole deal. The other 30 million still identify as followers of Jesus and uh, feel like their relationship with him uh, and their ability to follow him is better now that they have left that Sunday morning gathering sort of thing behind. They still they still consider themselves to be part of the church. They just don't do that Sunday morning thing. Anyway, uh, on your point there about these people who have sort of left the church, I sort of wonder if you could go to some of those 35 million who no longer identify themselves as Christian and say, you know what? Um, Tell me, why did you leave? Why did you reject it all? What happened? And I, I've had conversations like this with people. I have some really good friends who are of part of those 35 million. And I have mm -hmm. had this conversation with them, and they say, well, um, for them, uh, it, is, it was the issue of homosexuality. 
And they said that uh, the church they were in condemned all homosexuals to hell, and God hates homosexuals and all of that, and they just couldn't believe this, and so they turned their back on all of it. Well, and so I've been able to come along with them, to this, you know, alongside them, and say, well, that's just not true. You know, God loves all people, and, um, you know, and have this conversation with them and open up their eyes and their minds to the possibility that maybe the church didn't quite tell them the whole truth, or at yeah. least what the Bible says, or what we see in Jesus. And so I sort of think like what you're saying, these, these people who have rejected it, uh, really they're rejecting something that never probably should have been taught to them in the first place. And mm. if we can show them that that's not what God is like, that's not what Jesus is like, that's not what Scripture says, they might realize, hey, they're still following Jesus, <laughs> uh, and they didn't even know it, you know. And maybe Jesus was leading them out of the church, uh, at least that particular church, because of how abusive it was or controlling it was or what they were teaching. Who knows? Um, yeah. So it's an exciting time to see what's going on in the church today. And you're right. The church is asking all sorts of questions. Maybe they're helpful. Maybe they're not. But it's definitely a time of change and transition in Christianity today, and it's going to be interesting to see how it all unfolds and plays out. Yeah, it is. I, I like uh, I like looking at where things are going and what's happening. And uh, sometimes I feel like it's a little futile because what we predicted a couple of years ago <laughs> seems pretty far off. <laughs> well, where do you where do you think we're going? What do you think the church looks like in ten years, twenty years? I think, yeah, the predictions are pretty futile. I do remember some of those predictions. And they, you're right, they seem to change every five years or so. <laughs> they don't come true, but then we predict something different. But yeah. I guess if I had to predict something, I do think we're going to see more of an exodus from the Sunday morning congregational style of church. And um, I don't think that style of church will ever go away. Um but I do think that people are going to find uh, maybe better, if we could say it that way, better or different type of community relationship in smaller group settings, just in their day-to-day -day life, mm -hmm. you know, at, at work and at their recreation and at home and in their neighborhoods and in their communities. And they're going to realize that they can follow Jesus. He is leading them in these places, in these ways. And, um, you know, just as well as they were getting in the church, maybe even sometimes better. So yeah. uh, that's sort of where I think it's going. I just think these numbers, whatever the church does to try and prop things up, and by the church, you know, I mean this this, this institutional, uh, congregational, Sunday morning gathering style of church. They're going to try to prop things up and keep people in the fold, and they're going to do that in a variety of ways, some using guilt and manipulation and shame, but others are going to try and do it with, you know, better teaching or better styles of music or better children's programs or whatever. But that sort of thing has been always happening. And uh, the ch that Sunday morning style gathering just keeps bleeding people. So, And some people are still going to be more comfortable in that kind of absolutely um, environment. And absolutely. And they should, they should definitely. And I, I don't, in the past, in my blog, I've been kind of critical of that Sunday morning thing, and I repent of that. Uh, <laughs> there are lots of people that that style of following Jesus is really important and really necessary. It was really influential in my own life. So 
uh, that that style will always be important, always be yeah. around, and always be helpful for some. Yep. I live in a, a very small rural community, and um, not a very big population, but a lot of churches, a lot of little little tiny churches. Mm. And uh, you know, I, I used to be very critical also of you know these little churches where on a Sunday morning they might have less than ten people, yeah. and you know why don't they just get together with the other church down the road? Why do they even keep on carrying on? But you know, I, now I'm just kind of like if that's if that's where they find a way to worship God, and even if a lot of it is tradition, and even if a, a lot of their, you know, way they are able to worship and and meet God is just based on past experience, you know, maybe that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. I just hope they know it's okay too to maybe explore or investigate other approaches. And that's sometimes sure. where I think the danger is. They they feel tied to that particular community. And that might be helpful too. I don't know. You know, God's at work in each person's life in different ways. I sometimes look at, you know, I got three kids and they all have different interests. And uh, I sometimes think, even getting back to scripture a little bit, I sometimes think it would be nice to be able to write a, a, an instruction book for each one of my three daughters uh, one for all of them. Okay, three girls. Here, uh, here's the book. Do these things, and life will go great for you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Your your friendships, your relationships with each other, your relationship with your mom and dad. You just do these. Uh, follow this rule book here. Everything's gonna go go great. And you know, sometimes that's the way people approach scripture. But life and relationships, it just doesn't work that way. Each one of us have a different relationship with God and a different way of following Jesus than anybody else. And we have different interests, we're at different stages, we're at different places. And I think that's why, again, get, getting back to Jesus and following Jesus rather than following a book, uh, it's why following Jesus in a relationship, in, in my opinion, is so important rather than following the book. The book is helpful, don't get me wrong, the book is helpful, but it needs to be interpreted and understood and applied in light of the relationship you have with Jesus. Uh, just like in, in normal life, if I gave a rule book, we have rules in my family that all the girls are supposed to, to follow, but, you know, sometimes they get applied a little bit differently or considering life circumstances or what's going on in one daughter's life versus another. It just, things change and, well, daddy, that's not fair. You do. I know I did, but that's because of this and because there's reasons. So same thing with, uh, people in church and situations in church. We just have to trust that just as we feel we are doing our best to follow Jesus in our situation, with our life, with our knowledge, and our experiences, we have to trust that other people are doing the same thing and that Jesus will lead them, uh, just like he's leading us, and trust him to be sovereign and rule and and guide them as he's guiding us. We want to get involved and go take over and, oh, you got to do this, you got to do what I've done, and you know what, maybe Jesus isn't leading them there quite yet. Yeah. Yeah, good thoughts. So that was my discussion I had with Jason Weedle. Hope you found it enjoyable and instructive and encouraging. (laughs) Anyway, thank you for listening. And uh, next time we'll pick back up with our regularly scheduled programming when we look at various trouble texts from the Bible, try to explain them in light of Jesus Christ. Until then, keep following Jesus wherever it is he leads. Bye.